direct to our podcast. What is up, folks? Welcome back to the Repertoire Podcast, and more importantly, the first solo episode after we're back on a bit of a, you know, just hiatus, a lot of just changes happening with constructing the Total Station nomination course, all of the rebranding, all of the just like links that were broken and just all the trials and tribulations of changing. We're actually going to talk today about a brand company restaurant who had to go through that similar rebranding. And I'm sure they can empathize with what I had to go through, but that's not why you're here. You're here because this is the show where I basically do some monologues, some deep dives, some lesson extracting, I'll call it, from industry news in a way that could potentially offer another perspective. Not saying my opinions are right. These are just my opinions and how I'm kind of looking at how all of these are happening uh, in inside of our industry. And hopefully what this does is it helps you become a better thinker, a better professional, and just helps you make decisions throughout your career. And as these normally start, I have a brand new vessel that is holding today's beverage that I'm potentially excited to share. This is a red, uh, red. this is a yellow uh, Yeti, and it is holding a combination of uh, green tea that has toasted rice in it, which I'm really excited about. And then I randomly got a sample of this like matcha drink. It was like a matcha latte powder. And so I kind of combined the two and I don't necessarily know if I like it. I think the problem is this is like a really large tumbler thing. And I, I, it's there's too much water. It's too diluted. I think if I'm, I'm going to make this again, I need to steep the tea. And then I think maybe just add that to the matcha latte powder stuff. I haven't exactly decided what that might look like. But that's today's beverage. It's inside of a repertoire yellow Yeti tumbler. Sponsored sip for the ASMR folks. And let's get into, well, you know what? Total station nomination enrollment has closed. The next cohort is going to happen in August, September-ish is what I'm thinking. And during now, when you're listening to this and then, just a quick update, we're going to be launching a couple of extra workshops. Uh, One is around promotion. One is around setting up your, like getting a promotion at work. Another one is setting up your brand online using Squarespace. And the really cool offer that I have around that is that I basically want to do it where you enroll in the workshop. And then if at the end, you create your website, you get 100% of the workshop ticket price back from me, basically. And the way that that works, and like I'll be full, fully transparent on it, is like Squarespace has a referral program from me, for me. And so the idea there being that like if you want to just learn and you want to take the lessons and you still need to think about it, totally fine. If you take action, it's completely free to you because Squarespace will pay me. And so that's like a cool way for like me to give you folks free value and incentivize you to take action on the learnings and then also make it so that I'm just not like completely, you know, doing it out of the goodness of my heart. Like this is actually a business generating thing for me. And so just fun things like that, that repertoire allows me to do. And so I'm just kind of excited for it and just genuinely curious how you folks uh, uh, take advantage of that. Okay, so to start here, let's uh, transition. I got to make sure that my window settings are right. Okay, cool. So this is, oh man, for, you know, this might be your folks's, certain folks's favorite part of the show. I need to continue, unfortunately, to be the other side of the coin for Ryan Sutton's horrendously bad takes on the internet. So for those that don't know, Ryan Sutton is the chief critic at Eater. He is not just some random food blogger or some dude on Twitter who's like a pundit who just puts out his thoughts out there. He gets prime real estate on one of the industry's most read websites, Eater.com. And it's in New York, no less, is where he does a lot of his publishing. And for context, for those who haven't heard me rant about Ryan before, I have messaged him on Twitter asking him to come on the show so I can stop doing these monologues because, like, at this point, it's just free attention for him. I totally understand that. But, alas, I have yet to hear from him, and so I have to do these monologues because it's so frustrating to read his writing and, and, and how he tries to put lessons out there. I don't even know if you would call them lessons, but he published this piece, and it's called American Express Comping, so giving for free, $1,400 Noma pop-up dinners is the chef worship we don't need. 
So for some background, Amex, American Express, partnered with Noma for a five-night pop-up series in Brooklyn. So they're coming to Brooklyn. It's five nights of dinners. American Express owns Resi. And so on Resi, tickets were apparently only available to Amex cardholders. And you had to be one of their cards that apparently charges one of those like super high annual fees. So like Anna and I have the Delta Sky Miles Amex card, and it's like 95 bucks a year for that. And based on how much we fly and what we purchase, like it more than pays for itself. So it makes sense for us to be on that. The cards that Ryan is saying you had to have had is like the $450 a year all the way up to the $5,000 a year annual fee cards. Also, with this dinner, you could not eat alone, and so tickets were priced at $700 per person. And so that's where he can write his headline saying, it's $1,400 dinners. You basically just couldn't eat alone. You had to, It was a minimum of two ticket purchase. So the drama starts because Rene Redzepi gets COVID, and he obviously is not going to go to that dinner after he's tested positive for COVID. And so what happens is Amex takes all of the slots, all of the, the positions for the dinner, and says they're free. Chef Rene is not going to be there. It's not the same experience. And that's what Ryan is effectively writing about here. And so he has these like rhetorical questions. These They're like bullet points is basically the article. And he's posing these questions to Amex. And so he's writing these rhetorical questions and saying, hey, Amex, and then insert question. And so we're going to attempt to go down this list, answer these questions in a productive and hopefully insightful way for you folks to gain some insight here. So the question from Ryan, quote, if these diners had booked a table at Noma in Denmark, would they have marched into the kitchen demanding to know whether Red Zeppi was present and insisted on a refund if he wasn't? To be fair, I hear he's often there, end quote. No, Ryan. Well-traveled diners know that chef owners aren't always at their brick-and-mortar restaurant locations. But when you're literally publishing on the ticket page that, quote, chef owner Rene Redzepi and team on site throughout the entire dinner series, end quote, and Rene is not going to be there, now it's false advertising. Now it's mismanaged expectations. You do know there's a difference there, right? Between going to Noma and eating at Noma and going to a pop-up in Brooklyn that is marketed to be Noma, right? It's such a silly question. Think of it like this. If you go to a museum to enjoy the work of an artist, you're not upset that the artist is not there in person, right? You're in person because you trust that the museum staff and the curator and the person who did the lighting, they're going to give you a great experience of that creative work. Right. But if you were pitched a fireside chat in L.A. where the work is also going to be presented as part of a pop up exhibit and it's all about that artist being there and then that artist were to not be there for whatever reason, that's different. Right. We can agree on that. Also, the current menu pricing with today's exchange rate for Noma's menu, if you go to Noma in person, is four hundred and sixteen U.S. dollars. This pop up at seven hundred dollars per person is nearly twice the price of that. For a range of those, of reasons, one of those being that you actually guarantee that Rene Redzepi is going to be there. So that's my take on his first question. His second question, quote, will American Express start giving away free Teslas if Elon Musk doesn't individually deliver them to folks across the country like Santa Claus, end quote? You know, Ryan, that this is a ridiculous comparison, right? So just for fun, for sake of, you know, devil's advocate here. I tried to Google Elon Musk delivering Teslas, and shocker, nothing shows up, aside from articles about the company's actual delivery schedule, because they're a massive organization that's global. It's like Ryan doesn't understand expectations or consumer behavior at all. He just thinks that, like, do you think that people are stupid? When I buy a Tesla, no part of that monetary exchange includes me like crossing my fingers that when I go out into my driveway, Elon Musk is going to be there waiting for me to deliver the key, like give me my keys to my car. It's almost like you don't understand what it takes to run a pop-up dinner and how to make guests feel special during their experience. Going around and, ta and saying hi to tables and greeting people and having conversations is not even close to delivering cars. Because everybody's in one in one place, and you can say hi to, you can do the rounds, you can you know shake hands and kiss babies, as they say. We can agree that there's a difference 
between those two, right? So why why pose the question? It's just a silly question. Like you're you're drawing a false equivalency. They're not the same. Okay. His third question. Is American Express not setting a poor example for privileged diners to complain about their favorite high-profile chefs not being present at dinner time and to have to be apologetic about it because they're trying to stay healthy amid a global pandemic that's killed millions? End quote. And here comes the paradox. Because we're going to infer some in conclusions here. Ryan, do you pay for your meals when you go review a restaurant for Eater? Or does the company provide a stipend or reimbursement for you and then also pay you for your editorial work on the review? Hmm, that sounds pretty privileged to me. More privileged than someone who works hard to earn a salary and then takes advantage of the benefits that come from their credit card membership. It's not some exclusive club. If you want to sign up for a credit card, you can sign up for a credit card. Obviously, there's problems with income inequality. Obviously, like our credit score system in the U.S. is like flawed. Like there's flaws in it, but it's what we have. It's not like this is some pyramid scheme, right? Amex is a very successful business who made, in my opinion, a very ballsy customer service decision amidst what I can only imagine was an extremely chaotic situation. Like, Rene Redzepi gets, you get the text or the call from Rene Redzepi that says, hey, I have COVID. You've been planning this event for ages. You've marketed this to the nines. You have a bunch of people signed up and agreeing to go. You probably have a bunch of press people who are really excited to be there. I can only imagine what that situation was like for those event planners. You know they probably lost money on this event, Ryan, right? Because if anything... I think this would cause your brain to explode because all these meals are like so expensive to you. You can't really go lower than $0. So it's like, it's free. Isn't that good? Like you don't like that things are expensive. So they do it for free. And then you're still upset. Do you see how this, like you'll never find satisfaction. They'll, they'll never do it right. And again, to answer this question of like, is Amex setting a poor example for these privileged diners to complain? No. If anything, they're upholding this incredibly high level of integrity that I actually respect a lot. Like, I have a ton of respect towards Resi and Amex after seeing this decision. Like, can you imagine the article that Ryan would have written if they didn't share that Renee got COVID and they just didn't say anything and he just wasn't there and they said they tried to lie about it? Like, this is so transparent and so, like, customer service facing. So... He, this is his fourth question. Quote, in an era when the price of food is going up everywhere, when people are maxing out their credit cards and paying crippling interest rates so they can afford a nightly meal, should a $117 billion a year company really be giving out $1,400 meals to folks who can afford such luxuries just to coddle their big spending cardholders? End quote. All right. This one is infuriating because it's rhetorical. I can't tell what you're asking for here. Do you think they should have not gone to cardholders? Like, should they have made them the, the, the free spots available to everybody? Should they have just charged 50%? Should they have canceled the whole event? Like, you've got a pretty tinted pair of glasses that you're looking at this situation through. And I see it through a different colored reflective like tinted pair of glasses like i look at this as a phenomenal collaboration between organizations amex wins noma wins and the diners win of course this was going to sell out of course noma is going to bring their entire team can you imagine how cool this must have been for a chef de partie who's living in denmark who's never been to new york who gets the opportunity to travel and cook for this event I've shared this in previous, I'm calling these like Sutton shutdowns. I've shared in previous Sutton shutdowns that this argument will always be able to exist. It could have always been cheaper. People always could have made less money. This like, oh, you're making XYZ because ABC must be nothing to you kind of argument. If this was horrendously undersold, and they just couldn't manage to sell any tickets because nobody saw the value here. Bash away, Ryan. Go ahead. This was priced too high. This isn't worth it. Blah, blah, not value for money, whatever. But you're telling me that I can pay the price of a plane ticket to Copenhagen just probably to get there 
It's probably like 1300 bucks round trip. So I just pay to get there, and I get to stay in my home city if I live in New York and get a dinner from the team at Noma. Where do I sign? Like, hook it up. Like, I want to I, I book that, you know? To me, the value is totally there. And we've talked about this on the show before of like, maybe it's just not for you, and that's okay. That's the fallacy is that, like, you can please everybody. I think you folks have heard me go on that rant before. Another question from Ryan. Quote, does American Express really want to promote the idea that having dinner out is worthless, that it shouldn't command even a single dollar without the celebrity chef overseeing things? That's not a great signal for American Express to be sending when so many folks undervalue the labor of restaurant work and the millions of people scraping by in agricultural jobs and other professions supporting the larger food system. Giving away free meals like this recalls the trope of cuisine being the product of a gifted auteur and not the result of collaborative inspiration and collective painstaking work. End quote. Again, is this really how you think diners perceive this? If you're on a plane and the plane doesn't leave on time or there's a delay or something negative on the flight happens, that airline sends you a check in the mail, right? There's like entire indus- like businesses focused on getting upset and, you know, mistreated travelers their money for when they bought a ticket from Austin to Atlanta and something happened. Why do airlines do that? Because it's a display of goodwill. It's an expression of gratitude and generosity to the customer. It's the, I'm sorry, let's make this right. I think it's so cool that Rene Redzepi can increase the price of his experience when he promises he's going to be there. We should be applauding that. That's cool. We should not be bashing it. Do you think that all of the money that gets generated from this event goes straight into Rene Redzepi's pocket? It might. I'm happy to be proven wrong here. If you folks are like, I was on the team that w- that went to Brooklyn and did this thing, like, reach out to me on Instagram. Is it like you didn't get paid? Is that that they made you pay pay your way? You had to come up with your own accommodation? Like, I don't think that's what happened. I have a sneaky feeling that all of this money that you're talking about covers the travel expenses, the room and board, the venue rental, the admin costs, literally everything else that goes into moving a team across the world and producing an event in one of the most expensive cities on earth. I ran an event production company for three years, and it feels like you have no idea what you're talking about. And again, they still did the event with supposedly zero revenue. And so who do you think paid for it, Ryan? Yep, that $117 billion company that was a partner in the project. And so that's the power of collaboration and what happens when you have resources to work with. Folks, we gotta get it out of our heads that money is bad. Money is just a tool. Money is used for good things. Money, when used for good things, is good. Money, when used for bad things, is bad. Do you see that the, the tool is the same? It's like the intent and the psychology and the, the, the means to get to that end that really matter. Can we agree on that? These like psychological biases around money and finance and business can often be really, really crippling. And I hope you can all see that I'm super bullish on making money because if you're a good person, it allows you to do amazing things. His last question. Quote, one last question for my editor. Next time I miss my weekly column because I test positive for COVID-19, am I supposed to send a note to my readers apologizing for the disruption before giving everyone personalized recommendations and Groupons for Sushi Nas? End quote. Oof. Since you brought it up, man, in a previous dot point that you put in this article, let's talk about privilege. Would you say that your writing work requires you to be on your feet, smelling and tasting food, and being around other people? Or could you, if you needed to, write a piece from home remotely on your own time? Of course you need to go to a restaurant to experience the food, to get the context, whatever. That's that's out of the picture. But you can't tell me that you've gone out to a place and you haven't written about it. Like You can't tell me you don't have a library of material or you have thoughts on other things that have happened industry news-wise that you're completely willing to write about and put in your column every single week. 
Also, I checked, you got COVID in March of 2020, and you wrote about it. And you wrote about ordering takeout. You still did your work. You didn't miss a single weekly publication. I checked. For Renee, he's got to do this work in person. They marketed him to be in person. That's why this was such a big deal. Also, you do realize the hypocrisy in here, right? Literally in the last dot point, you claimed to be this, I'm pro-worker, support the staff, put the staff on the pedestal. And then in this last paragraph, you're literally saying that if you aren't there, the only possible alternative is a cheap and cringeworthy alternative. And so which is it, dude? Are you the gifted auteur in your work? Because that's what you're making it sound like. Whew. Exhale. Deep breath. I know you folks like it when I get spicy at Ryan. But as much of like that side of Justin is one that you don't always see, I get really pissed off when I see someone with his kind of platform spewing this kind of negative and unproductive rhetoric. And so in an effort to help you, mo you folks make better decisions and to parse the garbage when you see it and when you look at this article and you don't just say, oh yeah, that's probably bad behavior, blah, 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 that, maybe I should be thinking about it like that. No, like dig into that. Like ask, why is he saying it like this? Does this make sense to me? And again, reflect it off of your values. You might disagree with me. You might disagree with Ryan. You might be somewhere in the middle. If you have thoughts to share on this topic, as always, screenshot this point in the podcast and share your thoughts with me on Instagram. Okay, let's try to do a bit of a transition here. Boom. Okay, cool. Can I transfer over? Okay, cool. I want to do something as part of these, you know, when we, when this whole thing got rebranded, and we started calling it the Repertoire Podcast. The real push myself moment was, do I want this to be just about chefs? And most of you folks know that I have this uh, friend in Chris Spear who runs the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And I have another friend in Ray who runs Line Cook Thoughts. And I'm like, okay, do I stick with the Line Cooks thing? Do I go with, with chefs? Do, do I make this a podcast about chefs? And... I started thinking to myself, like, why can't I teach things to other people in hospitality? It's easy to, you know, write the label of chef in a restaurant, but I've been outside of a restaurant for coming up on five or six years now. And I feel under, you know, spoken to, you know, I feel like I, I want more people to be talking about chefs on TikTok and direct-to-consumer brands and ghost kitchens, cloud kitchens, and other food podcasts and just cool things that are outside of what a lot of other people think of when they think of chef content. And a lot of you folks have been great on sharing the fact that there's nobody else like me doing content out there. And so the way that I define, and this is the first time you're probably hearing it on the show aside from the announcement, is hospitality creators is anyone who I define is working in the hospitality industry who wants to build, impact, or profit. And if that's you, if that resonates, like you want to have, like you ask any chef, I played this out in my head, you ask any chef what do they want to do with their career, it's usually something around I want to open my own place. So that's like build. Maybe you're like the Jose Andres route, you want to impact in some way. And maybe you're someone who just wants to profit. Like you actually just, it's, again, this comes back to my thing of like, we got to stop making money a bad thing. So this section of the show is called the Hospitality Creator Spotlight. And so I want to talk about businesses, creators, uh, organizations that are doing just cool stuff. And maybe this puts them on your radar and maybe this is your next job opportunity. This gives you inspiration for your, your own thing. Or maybe it just connects dots of like, oh, I didn't know that people were doing that kind of stuff. So the first one is talking about Greg Backstrom's new spot. And so he opened this place in Prospect Heights. It's called Patty Ann's. I think it's a, a riff off of his mom. I think it's his mom's name. And it's slated as a Midwest-inspired, quote-unquote, family restaurant with dishes like cherry ketchup glazed meatloaf, saltine encrusted cedar plank salmon, and short rib 
pot roast. In addition to a bunch of other cool bakery items and fun cocktails, he's posting on his Instagram about it a lot right now. And so if you don't follow Greg, I definitely recommend you do so. And if you're in the Prospect Heights neighborhood, he's totally taken over that neighborhood. He's the king of that 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 area. And it's just incredibly inspiring to watch him from afar and to build what he's doing in restaurants. So I've had the pleasure of eating at Olmsted. I've eaten at Mason Yaki. And now I get to try Patty Ann's next. Okay, another creator who I'm really kind of just keeping an eye on is Thomas Straker on TikTok. And he has garnered over 50 million views for his All Things Butter series on both YouTube and TikTok. And what he effectively does is creates infused and enhanced butters, like a lot of us have probably done as part of our prep before, with like he's done a coffee chocolate salted caramel butter. He's done a wild garlic butter, a bone marrow butter, the list goes on. Each video talking about the strategy behind why I think this is performing so well, everybody, you know, like aside from being, you know, vegan or dairy free or whatever, everybody likes butter. And each video has such a fantastic hook at the beginning where he 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 quenelles the butter and then he just, you know, puts it on something and then takes a bite out of it. And then he says, here's how to make it. And he has this, you know, very soft kind of English accent, very, you know, read read my audiobook, please type of, you know, kind of air about him. And it's such a cool idea that I just wanted to, like, gas him up and, you know, applaud his execution on this idea because... It's clearly taken off, and it's clearly doing really well. Another creator that I'm keeping an eye on as we kind of stay TikTok, uh, you know, focused here for a second is under the handle "Not Yet a Chef," is his handle, and we can definitely argue that point if I ever have this gentleman on the podcast. But he talks about restaurants. He talks about fine dining. He's got industry experience, and he seems to be decently well traveled. Again, him and I haven't spoken yet, but you know, I just I, I shot him a follow yesterday or the day before. Jake is his name, and so I'm just kind of keeping an eye on him. He's about to hit 10,000 followers here, and I'm just excited to see where he goes. So that handle is not yet a chef on TikTok. Uh, oh, I'm not on here yet. Uh, last, uh, I don't think I have that page open yet. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. You can't see the visual for this, but there's a friend that I have named Arnold, and he used to work at Atomix, and he's got a great great project, a series of projects in the works uh, since leaving that restaurant. And the ones that I think you should follow are under the handles Made with Maum, M-A-U-M. And then he has another account called With Warm Welcome. And these are both on Instagram. And effectively, he's focused on empowering creative Korean creative Korean entrepreneurs and makers. And I just love his eye for aesthetic. He's super keen on collaboration and gassing people up, very similar to what I'm all about. And just the energy that he infuses into his work and his eye for, you know, this like modern Korean, Scandinavian, you know, just polished execution and infusing hospitality into all of it. And, you know, again, just like taking people at the beginning of their careers and helping them through, you know, what I can imagine is like, and I know this is like a very difficult process just where do I start is such a common question and so if you want if you're into Korean stuff if you're into just like hospitality growth made with Maum and with warm welcome from my friend Arnold is awesome and I can't wait to talk to him on the podcast someday okay I teased it now we can actually look at it. This is a screenshot from if you're not familiar with it this is the repertoire pro community. And so on the sidebar here, you can see we have all these different spaces. So watching slash listening, production slash publishing, gear talk, reading, podcast, dish menu talk, business time, wins, group coaching, discounts. That's the shameless plug. It, for those that aren't familiar, I had a Patreon for ages. This is like the TLDR. I switched to a pay to support the content on my own, kind of like white labeled service years ago. And basically what I'm doing now is I'm focusing on over delivering to that community. And so inside the Repertoire Pro community, I share discounts. I write about industry stories, all the spaces that I just shared. And I also do like some of my early writing on ideas just to kind of get them out and share my thoughts on meals or experiences or I got this piece of gear. I do some unboxings there sometimes. And in addition to that, a lot of you folks might have noticed that I don't do 
one-on-one coaching that much anymore unless you're a part of the Total Station Domination course. And that's because I do group coaching inside of this community. And so it's $19 a month. If you co- When you go to check out, if you check out the link in the description, I'm doing a promo right now where if you use the code just a dollar, all one word, so J-U-S-T-A-D-O-L-L-A-R, your first month is just a dollar. And then you are just on the subscription and you can just enjoy all the benefits and start conversations with other professionals and just check out some of that bonus content that I put out uh, every single week. I'm in that community pretty actively. So this is the post that I made and I'm going to read it and then we can just kind of elaborate on it. So this is about a perplexing experience I had and I wanted to write about it. So there's a pastry chef here in Seattle named Jessica Wang and she's been running pop-ups during the pandemic under a concept called hedonism. And it's their tasting menus, which are 100% desserts. And I went to one about a month ago. And so the best way that I found to just kind of write about this is like how I do gear reviews. And so we start with the stat, stats on paper and then what it was like to, to experience. So for this pop-up, it was in a location in Seattle called Pioneer Square. I've done pop-ups in Pioneer Square before myself. There were two seatings. One was at 6.30 and one was at 9.30 which I thought was genius because if you go to dinner at 5.30 and you get done at 6.15, you can go to eat dessert at the dessert pop-up at 6.30. And then same thing with the later seating. If you go to dinner at 8 and you get done at 9, you can go to the 9.30 dessert pop-up, which is really cool. We were a four-top, so it was just it was me and then three other people. There was one price, which was $125 per person, which included four dessert courses, a takeaway, and wine pairings for three of the four courses. And then gratuity is included in that price. So for $125 a person. The style of food is modern French pastry and confection technique using Taiwanese ingredients and flavor combinations. And the pop-up appeared to be, I didn't have the full, you know, kind of like staffing list, but it appeared to be staffed by Chef Jessica, two other chefs, and then three front of house folks walking around And I would say there was probably about 25 people in our 6 o'clock, 6.30 seating. And so then I go into talking about, and this is where I kind of get, you know, a little bit hesitant. We got there right around 6.25, right at 6.30, we were shown to our tables. And then I started to get some, you know, kind of qualms here because the presentation of each dish was a bit awkward. So we had menus on the table. They had printed menus. But because each dish had temperature components that were so like last minute, scooping ice cream, chocolate, that kind of stuff, the service of each presentation took like three to five minutes for the team to get the plates to the entire dining room because it was just kind of a long venue and you had to walk to get to individual tables. And then what was hard is after everybody received their dish, Chef Jess would lower the music and she would do this kind of spiel to everybody and describe the dish to everybody. And so for us, for all we were the closest table to the kitchen. And so for all four of the dishes, by the time she spoke, we had already finished our dessert because we were trying to enjoy it like right as it hit the table. And what else did I write? Front of house was friendly, but it was so busy that they basically had no time to do thoughtful hospitality. And it was the same with the chefs. I don't think we spoke to any of the chefs because they were so frantic that they didn't just kind of like run any food or talk to any guests. And, you know, listen, I've done pop-ups. I know how frantic and, you know, hard it can be. But the main point of this post that and the reason that I created it was that the first and the third dishes were repeated ingredients. And so the first dish was a peanut twill that was filled with a sweet soy milk mousse. And then the third dish was a cold noodle dish that was topped with a peanut and sesame twill, which is incredibly similar to the first course. You could tell me they're different recipes. You can tell me they're different techniques, whatever. They tasted very similar. Chef Jess was very transparent with everybody that the cold noodle dish, so that third course, inspired the entire four-course menu. But Should the first course then be served alongside the noodle dish instead of being served alone? Like I I was just, I was, I was, I was perplexed there. And then I already talked about repeated ingredients. The second and the fourth dishes repeated techniques. And so the second dish was an egg. So it was an egg presentation. And it was kind of coated in this kind of chocolate cocoa butter 
and then it was filled with a mousse and a custard kind of combination. And so the you 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 crack it open and then you get to the custard and then inside the custard is this kind of like fruit mousse thing. So it's like you can crack the shell. It looks like an egg. It's beautiful. And then the fourth dish was a mango and it was also a custard that was frozen and then had fruit inside and then it was enrobed again in chocolate and cocoa butter and so again these are like they're fun presentations they provide this wow factor they look like a mango and you kind of crack into it and exposes the inside but like doing it twice in one menu it felt a little like getting the green apple balloon at Alinea and then four courses later you get another balloon in a different shape and it's made from peaches instead of green apples right and so Again, the main point and the reason that I go on this rant is to identify the learnings here. This is not to bash Jessica. Like, I, of course, like, have had my learnings in pop-up experiences where I haven't had enough time to talk to guests. Uh, I don't think I've done the repeated ingredients thing. I, you know, looking at any one of my menus when I use, like, butter poached things or grilling or, like, you could say, and I talk about this here, so I would approach my pop-ups, especially if I was positioning it as a, a tasting menu, to not repeat ingredients. And for better or for worse, many techniques in savory presentations can be repeated because how they interact with different ingredients can be drastically different. And so think about it. I touched on this already. But if you grill, call that the technique, if you grill a piece of octopus and you grill a green onion or a scallion, technically speaking, you're grilling, that's your technique. But there's no shortage of restaurants that can make cooking over fire, grilling, that's their MO. That's the concept, right? But wrapping a scallop in thinly sliced zucchini and grilling it, and then wrapping a piece of fish in thinly sliced zucchini and grilling it later on in the menu, like that's a little sus. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you use the same ingredient and you've used the same technique and you've presented it the same and you're hoping that the guest does the same thing when they get it, that's a little sus, right? The same thing, and I, I, I'm trying to provide other, other concepts here as I'm writing about this. If you use seasoned rice as a vehicle for something like a nigiri in a long kaiseki experience, if you use it enough times with enough variety, I would argue it doesn't become repeated. It becomes stylistic. Does that make sense? So like if you're having nigiri after nigiri after nigiri, it's not that they're like they're obviously using it stylistically. It's not like they're trying to like cover up the lack of repertoire that they have. Again, this is a hundred percent splitting hairs on this meal because all of the techniques, all of the flavors were executed with extreme precision and accuracy. I had no problem with the execution of the flavors. Maybe maybe you could argue it's like with the execution or maybe it's structure. I'm having problems with structure here. Because again, the wine pairings here as well were done by a friend of mine who I've worked with on previous dinners. And he did a phenomenal job on the wine pairings. The I talked about the timing already, so I won't talk about that. Anytime I try to do this, give feedback on an experience. This is not me trying to dunk on anyone. It's more providing constructive feedback on a menu so that you folks can bounce your ideas off of my perspectives and see what sticks. And a lot of this comes from a combination of like my own insecurities. I don't want to get called out for using things multiple times and just managing guest expectations. Like what I'm a person who actively is interested in your product and I came to enjoy it and I, you know, had some had some issues. I share also in this post that I would do this to a fault sometimes. I wish I would have reduced the complexity of my menus because many of my eight course menus where I was trying to overcompensate because I felt insecure about my food, they could have been five course menus. And a lot, and, and you could take that further, a lot of my six component dishes could have been four component dishes. The thing is, if you pay for a tasting menu, you're fundamentally promising that the guest is going to taste multiple things. And what this does, when you construct a tasting menu, this is turning into like a tasting menu uh, tutorial, but the benefits that come from doing a tasting menu are like, you get to show your range, you get to show th that you have multiple things in your repertoire. You get to weave a story with multiple edible examples 
as you're kind of like hitting on these points of what you're trying to say. You're allowing, when you do a tasting menu, you can allow, your dishes have the ability to have just one focus on them instead of having to cram everything into like one or two presentations, right? Because a dish like oysters and pearls works so well because it's a three or four bite presentation. You don't, you don't want to eat an entire ramen bowl full of oysters and pearls because you're trying to get full off this dish. Tasting menus are brilliant for ideas like that because you can just focus on, I want to show you this thing that I made called oysters and pearls. And then additionally, what tasting menus allow you to do is use a larger palette of ingredients. Think of a painter with all their different paint colors. We have the ability when we do tasting menus to have a more a larger selection of ingredients across multiple dishes. And I shared in a previous Repertoire Pro community post about the value of having an, what I call an assured dish, something that's ready to go in your menu. You can read more about it if you decide to subscribe. But her second and fourth dishes were that. They were assured courses. They were pre-prepped. They were ready to serve. They allowed for more technical complexity on the dishes. They had buffer time in case something happened. But they were, and they were assured dishes. But the, it's not wise to do an assured dish. And like that's why I write about these things because I can get my thoughts more clear and concise. It's not worth doing an assured dish if you're sacrificing so much of those upsides that I shared about a tasting menu. I shot a video that night. You folks can let me know if you would like me to publish that video as like a TPC style thing. Maybe, maybe not. I don't necessarily know. She's clearly still in the pop-up phase. And I know how hard to do, how hard it is to do what she's doing. I just wish like someone would have come to my pop-ups and given me this type of feedback. Everybody who came to my pop-ups, for better or for worse, were like, they either said nothing or they were just like, oh, it was so amazing. Thank you. It was, it was the best, blah, 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 whatever. I think there's somewhere in between where it's like you want feedback that helps you improve. And so this is why I kind of share these thoughts. And so that is a little bit on repeated techniques and ingredients. Let's go to the next point here as we're continuing the solo podcast. Okay, this is a cool story and a concept. This might be a quick hit. I'm just taking some inspiration from this and I wanted to share it with you folks. I did, if you folks remember, I did a TPC episode on a restaurant called Grand Cafe in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, in the fall of 2020, they announced they would not be returning and they would, you know, because they had to close for a few business for a few months, like a bunch of businesses had to do. And so this is not in chronological order, but I'm going to share what they had to do since then and, and how they've kind of changed and evolved. So they launched something called Grand Cafe at Home, which was super smart. It was a meal kit. It was take home experiences. It was basically productizing what Grand Cafe does and being able to deliver it no contact safely COVID safe. And then they rebranded it. So I had to look at my Instagram feed and I was like, what's this Paris dining club that I'm following? I think they just changed the handle of Grand Cafe into Paris dining club. And so they have a new venue. I'm pretty sure it's a new venue. And all the websites had to change. Again, this is me talking about rebranding trauma. And they basically now do a combination of venue rental. They still do the meal kits. They do in-person private events. And they also do content production all out of the same space in Minneapolis. And so you can probably see from the from the photos here, you can check them out, uh, Paris Dining Club. It's immaculately decorated. And it just looks like a super fun dinner party space. And so sharing some numbers here with you, because again, we're not afraid to talk about money here on the Repertoire Podcast. Booking a private event rental starts at $1,500 plus a per person menu and beverage cost, as well as a 20% hospitality fee. And so those per person fees, it looks like are three courses for $75, seven courses for 110, and then per person, and then the beverage package is $60 per person. And so I don't, I'd have to look at the website to see other specifics, but a little bit to our point on the Amex Noma conversation, if this price point is in line with your target demographic, this might be a fantastic deal for the person that you're marketing this towards. I'm not going to buy this, but like for who it is for, 
if you have a well-regarded chef cooking for you, the space is taken care of, the food is sorted, the beverages are done, again, like my event production brain kicks in and I'm like, if you had to coordinate all of that on your own, especially if you don't know events, you don't know hospitality, you'd have to spend hours doing this and bundling it all together. And so them doing the bundling is a fantastic product. And so if you just want the venue, it's $400 an hour with a three hour minimum. And you can literally use, when you if you book the venue, you can use all the tables, you can use all the chairs, you can use all the serviceware, you can use all the props if you wanna produce content out of this studio. And I think for those of us who have had experiences with venue rental or private dining rooms, they know you you like in your restaurant if you if you've worked at a restaurant that 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 rents out the space that does buyouts that does private dining room stuff you look at the numbers and you're like this is so smart for our business cuz the, the the margins are just there and i'm sharing this here as you know something that i'm taking notes from i would love to open a space like this in seattle and all of this might resonate with you and you're like, oh, there's like a business opportunity here. Like I'm not squeezing the most out of my space that I could. Here's another cool thing. They do $150 a month date night monthly subscription service. And so they'll make a meal kit, a, you know, at home experience, $150 a month and you get the box just delivered to you. That might be hit or miss. I don't know how well these are selling for them, but like they're thinking about consistent recurring revenue models, which is great. I've also just learned this as looking at the site. You can rent the tableware. So they have Bernardode, Bern, Bernardode, I'm, I, I always screw up that word, from their twist line. You have a Villeroy and Bach set. It's just really cool. Like they deliver the plateware with your order. So you want to do the date night and you also want to have like really cool china that we've never, we would never have this, you know, any other way. But like, why not? Let's add it. And then they pick up the stuff after the event. So, 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 so smart. So I'm curious, would you folks consider adding this to your website? Would you add this as a service to your business? If you can get sufficient structures in place, like these forms that they have on the website, if you can have some like e-commerce functionality and infrastructure, this could easily help you grow your revenue in your business. And so if this is valuable to you, if you have like an unlock that just happened for you, screenshot this point in the podcast and share your thoughts with me on Instagram. Even maybe just send some pictures of like, I could rent this on Sundays or I can rent out this plateware that I have. Because again, it might not be for you, but try to identify who are the kind of like target demographic points in here that you could potentially cater to and increase your top line. I think this is really cool. Last point, I am so excited for these shoes. On screen right now, I have a brand. It's a new brand. And yes, it does not help that they picked the most generic hospitality name ever. It's called Mies Footwear. And so, again, we've covered the Mies Knife Bag from Hadley and Bennett, the recipe software that I have recommended from jo previous guest of the show, Josh Sharkey, called Mies, spelled M-E-E-Z. And these guys are out of Portland, and they're called Mies properly spelled M-I-S-E. But the coolest part about these guys is the design of these shoes. So it's like a sandal. So folks on, on screen can see this right now. It's like a red, it's, it's like a sandal that has this like flexible, stretchy piece of neoprene on the top. And that wraps over the top of your foot. And then your foot goes into this red sole part. And then you make it a shoe by adding this like leather outsole part. And that has like a non-slip bottom and it wipes off super easily and it's basically all black. So it's black on black and then the, the insole is red, like I said, which is so up my alley that's like made for me. And it's a pretty minimal branding on the outside. It says Mies on the side and then on the back it has that M. They've been pretty wrecked by supply chain stuff. I've been messaging them on Instagram. This is not a sponsored slot. You can literally just pre-order on their site right now. So I can't even tell you folks to buy these even if I wanted to. But... I have no doubt that I will do something with Mies in the future. I just wanted to put this on your radar because it's a bunch of smart designers tackling this problem of can we make a better kitchen shoe? And for me, one of the most popular questions I get from you folks is what shoe should I buy? And so they're $129. They come in a bunch of EU sizes so you can get more granularity on your fit. And I basically just can't wait to get my hands on a pair. So 
That has been episode, I think this is 151 of the Repertoire podcast. If you have questions for me, if you have, you know, feedback you want to share, uh, if you just, you know, loved hearing another solo podcast episode being out there, please share your thoughts with me on Twitter, on Instagram. You could tag me at Justin Kana or join Repertoire is the other um, handle that we have. And if you want to enroll in Total Station Domination, get on the email list. Um even email me if you're like, if you get the timing just right, the first session starts on June 6th. And that is one of those, you know, kind of ones where we're just trying to um, do this in a regular cadence where we have enough time to improve the course contents in between cohorts, but still do it in a way that matches for everybody's schedule. And so I really appreciate you being with me. Until next time, roll the outro. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, as well as other helpful content that we create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community, you want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created, you can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.